0: Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer.
1: Joanne Joseph and I have had one thing in common, many things in common. Of course, we both work for the same radio station, 702. And um, I left after 28 years, and I'm not missing it, Um, but I loved it. You left under slightly different circumstances, but I think... The words and your face have been familiar to so many people across South Africa because you had the international or the national reach and whatever. Do you miss it at all?
0: Um, From time to time, Jenny, what I really miss is the breaking news, you know, that that kind of exciting... Um, sort of breaking news where you uh, fly by the seat of your pants and you don't know what you're doing next, nobody does. And there's lots of foul language in the control room and everybody is just flying about the place trying to get a story out. That is what I miss, I miss the energy of that. And the kind of the, the wild sort of indulgence of not knowing where you're going next, but, but um, you know, knowing that you you're all actually flying in formation, although it, it feels quite chaotic. That's what
1: I miss about it. And I mean, I think the wonderful thing about radio for me is that um, you can actually have chaos all around you physically, yeah. but as long as they're quiet, nobody can see the chaos. <laughs> so so I can remember when uh, Diana died. And I was on air for eight hours. And I knew about her death. Um, somebody, a friend of mine in Houston phoned me up and said, Jenny, turn on the television. Mm. And I, I obviously did immediately. Yeah. And she'd broken her arm at that stage. And so you just start pulling on your clothes, and you just start running. But I mean, it's exciting. It's, it's, it's history that you're, you're working with. And history really is at the at the centre of, of your novel, the children or children of sugarcane. It's a wonderful cover, I think, and I I loved it from the beginning to end. I always read the end. I mean, not the end of the book. Yeah. Um. But I read the author's notes always first, mm-hmm. because it just tells you. It just gives you an extra layer while you are reading. It's true. Yeah. And the book has been nine years in the making. Just take us through that a little bit.
0: So, so Jenny, it started off with an interest in the story of my great-grandmother on my mother's side of the family. On my father's side of the family, we have quite a different history. Uh, we have passenger Indians. So, um, there are good records of how they came here, paid their way, um, found work here, established mission schools and hospitals and that kind of thing, and, um, and, and, and lived a relatively good life. My mother's side has been a mystery to me for a very long time, even to my mother. I mean, she doesn't know much about her, We hadn't known much about her family history before I undertook this project. But I had a photograph of my great-grandmother, and in this photograph, there she sits as a kind of matriarch, about 30 years after she's come to South Africa. And she's a much older woman by now. It's probably more than 30 years, probably 50 years. Um, and, and she's a much older woman and she's established and she's done her work as an indentured laborer. And she's managed to educate her children and I think live a relatively good life, You know, run a Methodist mission from her home for 30 years, bravely marry across the color line and that sort of thing. Um, but there was, there was just a whole lot of history missing as to why she came here in the first place. What made her leave India with her younger siblings as a 21-year-old woman? Um, and, and what kind of life she would have come to here? What, she, what her life would have entailed um, for, for the time that she worked on the Natal government railways, which was the second largest employer uh, during that time of indenture? Um, and I didn't have answers to any of those questions. And, and I desperately wanted to fill in the gaps. And that's how the story came about.
1: Well, you know, I was skimming through the book after a very late dinner last night. <laughs> friendship and late dinners, my goodness me. <laughs> um, and, yeah, well, you know then. Um, so this really starts in the late 1860s. Mm. And, uh, and then it hits Durban in 1878. And then it ends, more or less, in Madras in 1916, Mm -hmm. so it it spans a huge length of time. And there are lots and lots of characters in this book. Um, And I wondered whether, because I knew a little bit about your grandmother, I wondered whether some of the other major characters were real, or whether they were fiction, but maybe based on fact, because I think there's an awful lot of fact in this book, but it it shows your research.
0: Yeah, well, I I did spend quite a lot of time researching it, but, um, you know, you have to build characters that Mm -hmm. are going to carry the themes Mm -hmm. of your story, and so, while the characters are imbued with some of the qualities of people I know, friends, relatives, family, um, they, they are actually characters that I built to act as vehicles to carry these themes through, *Indenture* is just such a vast kind of uh, project and system. When you look at it, you know, and, and it, was, it was only 50 years long. So, in the greater scheme of things, it wasn't terribly long. But a lot happened during that time, and because of that, you've got to you've got to find characters that are going to are, are going to extra- help you extrapolate the themes quite well. Um, And I made sure, of course, that most of those characters, or the most important characters, were female, Mm. because it was important to me to be able to tell the story from the perspective
1: of a woman, Mm. which hasn't been done very widely in South African fiction before. But your grandmother must have been quite remarkable, because she might have come with her siblings, but no parents, no no aunts, No. no uncles, nobody with the wisdom to guide you just a little bit on what must have been a daunting... It was a two-month 2, two month journey, wasn't yeah, two it? To see, months. Two yes, to three months. Two to three months. Uh, it, it, yes. It,
0: yeah, yeah, normally a six-week journey. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. It would have been very unusual for a young woman of that age to leave without a chaperone so it says to me that um, she and her siblings left because there was nothing left for them in, in India. And that happened to be a period of time that was marked by severe natural disasters. So you had, um, you had famines on the go, you had droughts on the go. Uh, the British had, had meddled with the subsistence farming systems there, so, so people were actually not able to eat. There was nothing to eat. I mean, a lot of old people and, and children in particular died of hunger during that time. And, and Madras was severely affected. That would have been the area that my gran- great-grandmother came
1: from. And, and I presume that it was under those circumstances that she left. So your main character, and I'm, I must read you, you guys some of the, the comments, um, because they, they are really interesting. One of our great novelists, she's not famous, but I mean, she uh, she really should be. Her name is Sapiri Gloria and Lovu, and she's a cl- one of the clutch of... Zimbabwean writers that are doing such amazing work. And there's another one, and her name is No Violet Bulawayo. Mm-hmm. There's Patina Gappa. No Violet is not coming. She came here about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they are all writing the most uh, astonishing books, and, and Tsitsi Dangaremba, of course, yeah. um, and, uh, and that wonderful prize that she won. But Tsipiwi was just saying, an interesting and important look at a vital moment in South African history And she made the point that the story of indentured labor is refreshingly uh, refracted through the prism of gender and the experience of women. And then Imran Kuvadia, who also wrote um, a very warm and wonderful novel, also about Indians in Durban. It it was very funny. I mean, if you can get hold of Imran Kuvadia's book, you will love it. Um, uh, Joanne Joseph has written a novel of the old kind. One which brings to life different and simultaneous worlds: India, South Africa, Madras, Port Natal of the 19th century, which incorporates stories of love and murder, the court, uh, the court and the plantation treason and new kinds of loyalty. And then Professor Jonathan Johnson, who we all love, of course, I can't read the whole thing, but uh, Children of Sugarcane is an extraordinary novel with compelling characters that draws vivid attention to the tragic heroism of indentured Indian women on the British-owned plantations of Port natal in the 19th century. And we forgot how wild, I mean, we do forget how wild Port Natal actually was. If you go back and look at the old pictures, it was wild. It was.
0: And I was looking at pictures of it the other day, um, Jenny. Um, Some of our our British publishers wanted to just have a look at pictures of what what it looked like at that time. when you think of the distances now, this is something I made my dad go and investigate for me. What is the distance from the jailhouse to the court and that kind of thing? And of course, in, 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 those, in, in our modern terms, where we're able to travel so quickly between places, you know, the distances seem very short, but actually, it, it was quite a In in terms of plotting as well, getting people from one place to another, getting people from Tongat on the north coast, your characters, to to the Durban jail and so forth. It's a very, very long trip on a cart, you know. Or walking. Or walking, yes. And and they do a lot of walking in the novel. Um, They do a lot of walking in India to get from the the sub-depot to the depot to the barracks to the the place where the ships will leave from. Um, And and so the distances are great, and that's part of the
1: ardour, I suppose, of... Of moving around during that time, but also uh, Shanti, who is uh, who is the heroine. I mean, she is a she's a very modern woman. I mean, you imbued her, but there must have been women like that anyway. Yes. We just don't hear about them because nobody was writing about them. Yes. they were just in families, or sometimes um, on their own, which must have been very difficult at that time. Because they were always they were spinsters, of yes. course. And, and
0: funny enough, I was I was reading I was on a history website the other day reading about an, uh, three women, uh, and and uh, you know they they were from the from the east, um, but one of them was from India and she was a doctor. She had trained as a doctor during the same period, more or less. And so they were these outstanding women who were not written about widely, uh, but who had a deep interest in education and um, had, had a had a sense that, that they had a place in that there was a place in the world for learned women. Um, and it seems like a bit of a revolutionary idea now. It may, may seem like quite a modern idea presented in a novel like this, but it's not. I mean, it, it, India has been a seat of knowledge for thousands of years. Um, and although much of that knowledge has been withheld from a caste and a class and a, and a feminist point of view, there were women who
1: bucked the trend, though they were few and far between. But also in Europe, the same thing, the same thing was happening. Mm-hmm. Enlightened, I mean, Sir Thomas More, I, I'm so sad. You, we can't go to his house in London because obviously there are buildings on top of it. Mm-hmm. But all his daughters—I mean, they learnt English and Greek and Latin mm-hmm. and, and whatever—but they could talk about geography and et cetera, et cetera, et, yes. et cetera. And yes. they were they were amazing in their time, and many men found it very disturbing. Yes, and um, as some still do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes. Exactly. So, so Shanti is. Um, She's a contemporary woman in our eyes. Back then, she almost had to hide the fact that she could read and write. So, so because it just wasn't accepted. Yes. And, and the reading and the writing, of course, opened new worlds for her, and her character developed. She was only, what, 15 or 16 when she left India. In about
0: 14. About 14. She purports to be 16, but yes. she's not. She, oh, that's right. She yes. deceives the, uh, the
1: officials to get there a little bit earlier. So she had all sorts of advantages, but she had to conceal them. Mm-hmm. But, but her character was already, she was incredibly brave and incredibly together for a, for a teenager but we forget the times in which she lived. That's true. And, and if one
0: thinks about being a teenager in this day and age, I mean, it, it, it of course depends on, on where you hail from and, and what you, what sort of social situation, cultural situation, economic situation in which you now live. Um, but, but at that time, Girl, girls were women much earlier than they are mm. now.
1: And they were married off.
0: Exactly. Mm. And, and that is what she's trying to escape. It's, it's largely fear that drives her to mm. leave India for Port Natal. Um, it, it, it's, not, it's not just the grandiose vision of, um, of, of being able to access an education and improve her life and become a woman of letters. Those, those are wonderful ambitions for her to have, and they, they do partly drive her, but she's largely driven by the fear of entering what is potentially a violent marriage. Mm. Um, she has seen examples of that before in terms of the, um, the, the, the friends that she has, mm. other girls with whom she's moved around in the community, and it has not ended well for mm. them. Um, some of them have ended up dying as a result of, of violent marriages. And so the, the reality of gender-based violence in that Indian mm. society is very real. And and Shanti just does not want that life. She's Mm -hmm. running away from that life. She's hoping to run towards something else, you know, uh, perhaps a a chance at a better life, a chance at at developing her intellect and becoming a woman of letters. But but fear is the thing that actually drives her. And and that changes her from from a a very immature young girl into a young woman when she's actually a teenager. Mm.
1: So so when Shanti travels, and we're not spoiling the book for any of you, by the way, Um, when Shanti uh, travels, uh, and finally, after a dreadful voyage, I mean dreadful, um, it, it's, it's like some of the old slave ships that you see. Um, and as she arrives in Port Natal, everything actually looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. It does look totally beautiful. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your research, because I think I was sitting next to... Um, Uh, a foreign correspondent last night at dinner, and he's off to the Ukraine today. Mm. And uh, he speaks fluent Russian, and um, so he's not on the Russian side, but you can almost hear them breathing, Mm. you get so close apparently. And what he was saying is that it it is quite extraordinary with our history in South Africa, the vast gaps of knowledge that we have. Mm. We really and truly, I don't think indenture and the Indian, we know that Indians arrived in en masse, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, and what, but no more than that, really, that and sugarcane, so you sort of pair the two together, and that was basically all, all you learned. So there are just these huge areas. We didn't know that there were elephants in France, shook. I mean, we just didn't know. Yes. And I just think the Bullhook massacre, so many things, if we could know a little bit more, we would understand a whole lot more. I think that's so true, Jenny, and, and I think we need to start moving towards a notion of
0: our shared history in this country because um, we we haven't begun to tap into our own history yet, never mind the history of everyone we live with in this country. And, and there is so much scope to do that. It is a vast history in this country. Um, and, and every little group has such an interesting. Every community is such an interesting little yeah. piece of that history, yeah. um, and, and they're quite nuanced as well. So, so it's not as though you can even, you know, give 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 a give a person a very clear cut idea of of your history as a. As a sort of uh, untouched individual within a particular community, we are so hybridised mm. as South Africans, mm. and so, so you, you've got these incredibly nuanced layers, like a milfay of, of cultural history, linguistic history, and, and so forth. Um, I'm going to, to take yes, this mic. I'm battling with it a little bit, so I'm going to hold it. So, so the the, I mean, the idea of of indenture. You're quite right. It it it's it's treated really as a sliver of history. Mm. Um, In textbooks at school, it's glossed over largely at universities and other tertiary institutions, and yet it's 50 important years in, in the country's history because it brings the largest group of Indian people outside of India to to a country, to to, and they become quite influential in in the culture of that country and and the, the the I suppose the the economics of the country as well and the politics too. You, you're right. So it's it's um you know it is an important part of history. But there are so many gaps in our history, and. Um, you know, one reason that Jonathan Ball was such an attractive publisher to me is because I was, um, I, I met the, my publisher, Ganesi chabalalo who was tasked with, with the project of building up lost history in our country, excavating those mm. histories, and, um, and, and and making sure that they are woven into texts that are both palatable and accessible to a wider mm. South African, African, and international mm. audience. Um, and, and there is so much value in that because there is so much more history to tell.
1: So so tell us a little bit about your, your journey researching this, and I know you had a nine year period, so During that period, towards the end of that period, you must have been writing um, consistently the whole time. But the research must have been significant.
0: The the research was consistent. Um, So I was consistently researching for nine years. And there were different aspects of research that came up as I became interested in different aspects of the indenture story. My writing was not consistent. Um, I'm I'm a very erratic writer, so I I lock myself away for sort of five days or ten days at a time. Um, I get up really early in the mornings. I write through the day. I don't leave my room for an entire day. Um, I have a lovely husband over there who feeds and waters me, a daughter who comes in to check that I'm still alive. Um, and and that's, that, that's how I write. And, and that's, that's the way I've written. So it's, it's been intermittent writing over a period of nine years. But the research, Jenny, is actually overwhelming. And, and there's, there's a vast amount of it. And I'm, I'm very grateful that we live in a country where we have the most amazing academics who've written about indenture. So it is actually... Most of it is is all in the textbooks. Um, I believe I was told by Selvan Naidu from the 1860 Heritage Centre the other day, however, and he he said to me, you know, we've just scraped the surface. There are boxes and boxes of unopened information and history lying around somewhere to do with indenture that we have not opened yet. And and so there's a lot more research to be uncovered. Um, but, but we have wonderful academics. Dr. Betty Govenden is sitting in the audience this morning and she has done a vast amount of, of research on, um, on on indenture in regard to literature specifically and injecting that into the South African canon. Um, and and uh, you know, written a lot of poetry uh, because her, her grandmother was a, a, a tea picker on a plantation in Kersney, you know, as a little girl. So, so we've, we've all got this, this history and, and there were There were large tracts of it to get through. Um, it is intriguing history, but it's not widely available. It's not being made widely available. So you
1: did, did you have to find the archives? Because I know they're not all in a good yes, condition. Yes, no,
0: they're not all great. Mm. Um, and, and there are many, many gaps in the archives. So certainly for my family history, I had to do that. And I wasn't able to get that much out of the archives, to be honest. Um, and they're housed at Peter Maritzburg. A lot of them have been digitised in Pretoria and put online, which is useful. Uh, but, but um, you know, the the... the theory around it and, and the
1: academic history around it has been very well documented, mm. thankfully. So, your life must have been fairly full because you had a full-time job and, uh, and of course, you got your own company as well. That also takes up time. And this discovery of um, your ancestor, but they, she must have had obviously brothers and sisters and whatever, and their descendants, what was their response to the writing of this? Or did they so, not know? You know, I,
0: I, I, a lot of them don't know. Eh? And I've discovered parts of my mother's family, members of my mother's family I didn't know existed. My mother has lost contact with her family in many ways. And and she's been so absorbed into the Joseph family that that we hardly know any powers on, on that side of the family. Um, so, I've got all these cousins now wonderfully crawling out of the woodwork saying, hello, cousin Joanne, very nice to meet you. And I am a relative of this brother and this sister and whatever. It's a very interesting family. It's a very colonial family in some ways as well. So we've got relatives in Britain and that kind of thing. And, and there's a whole tranche of the family completely undiscovered that I'm still learning you, you know, to, to get to know um, as, as time passes. Um, but But they've also all got interesting little snippets. So my great-grandfather, for example, I know, uh, I, found, I, I stumbled upon his, um, upon his death certificate in the archive. And we, we knew that he had died relatively young, but we didn't know the reason for his death. And, and there I was following the, 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 all these lines, this sort of line of inquiry, and I saw shot to the head by a revolver. Um, so he shot himself, allegedly, and then I met a cousin at my book launch in Hyde Park who said, you know, he wasn't really shot by He, d- he didn't really shoot himself. He was shot by his sister-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so there's a lot more uncovering to do there evidently, Jenny. So Shanti arrives in, um, in Natal. It's lush, it's green. It's, it's everything that Madras wasn't, of course, at that particular time, because that was dusty, there was no food, people were scrabbling. Uh, for... Her initial response was, was positive until she saw the conditions in which she and the people who traveled with her, who were sent to that particular sugarcane farm, uh, lived in. What were the conditions like?
0: Gosh, they they were akin to slavery, essentially. Um, And and I always make the distinction between slavery and indenture because there are technical differences, and especially out of respect to to slaves who were brought to this country or the North Atlantic slave trade, I think it's important to make that distinction. So they were not born into indenture. They they were not sentenced to indenture for for the duration of their lives. But the conditions on the plantations were really, really awful. There was no running water, uh, obviously no electricity at that time. Um, they lived in these little shacks called logies, And in these logies, they, you know, they, they, sort of, they were hewn together out of grass or corrugated iron, little bits and pieces of, of material that they could find, much like the shacks in which our people in this country live today. Um, and and you know, they, they bathed in, in a river nearby, they drank that water, um, they, they used that water for, for the purposes of cooking. Um, the, the hours on the plantation were really arduous, so they were promised a, a very civilized sort of work routine of, you know, a sort of, um, you know, when you, you wake up when the sun rises and you, and you do a certain number of hours of work, sort of eight hours of work a day, and, and then you will be allowed to retire for the, the day, you will not work on weekends, you will be given a ration of doll, rice, salt fish if you're fortunate, None of that actually happened. I mean, they they worked horrendous hours. They worked till after dark. They worked till before dawn. dawn. Uh, Many of them were dragged out of their, their logies on weekends to continue working, particularly if there was a backlog of work. The women worked exactly the same as the men in the sugarcane fields, and they earned half the wages. A lot of children were born during that time. The women were not welcome, of course, um, because they were seen as a kind of burden on, on the British state at the time. And uh, you know, they, they, they came here, there were 40 women allowed for every, every 100 men who arrived. Um, and, and they tried to keep those numbers as low as possible because there was always the danger that Indian people were going to begin to outnumber the British settlers, which they did in a very short period of time. Um, but, but, but the circumstances under which they were, brutal circumstances, they were beaten, the women in particular were raped, suicide was, you know, happened en masse on the plantations, and we're only starting to actually see some of those numbers coming through now. And those plantations still exist. I mean, these are the forerunners of Hewlett's, who keep our tea sweet, right? And, and, and there is this legacy of the Reynolds, bro- Reynolds brothers, for example, who owned a farm in Tongat. They had the highest number of suicides across. Um, across Port Natal, in terms of those living on the plantations, the indentured. And the indentured, eventually, they they, they saw suicide as a way out, Jen, because there was no other way out for them. The men were deeply emasculated. The women were oppressed by a double system of of, of oppression, essentially. They they were living within a cultural system, a deeply patriarchal Indian system that had been transported with them, with the community, to Port Natal. But... They were also living under the, impression the oppression of a British society in which they were deeply subjugated. So uh, if you were a woman on a plantation who was raped, you needed your plantation owner's permission to go and report, to leave the plantation, to go and report him. Um, th- there was simply no way out for many of them um, and, and if you were fortunate, by the end of five years, which was the, the usual duration of the contract, three to five years, you would be able to leave the plantation and hopefully you know, either start a new life for yourself here in, in Port Natal, or you would have to go back to India.
1: And pay for
0: it, yeah, Well, that, that was covered in the cost mm-hmm. of, of arriving here. But, but it was really difficult to stay, even though you knew there was nothing left for you in India. No family members, no prospects of success or prosperity there. you would would probably have to leave because there was a heavy tax levied in order for you to stay. There, There were really legal efforts made by the British to ensure that staying would be quite difficult.
1: So, the whole thing of indenture, what struck me about the book was that the, there was still so much of home, India, in their lives. It was the character of what they used to do was kind of brought out to South Africa. Even though you had Indians coming from different parts, didn't you? It wasn't just Madras, it was all over. So there was this intermingling. But there was a a very strong sense of community in amongst all of the, the things that you have been mentioning. And and I think they, I think they were even building temples then. Yeah. So so there was that and you can go along I mean when you go to kwazulu Natal, you can see elements of that, can't you? Yes,
0: yes, you can. They very much left their, their mark on the landscape, you know, and, and, and you do talk about temples in areas like Verulam and so on. They're very ornate temples that um that, that hark back to a time when they had left indenture and they were, they were starting to build a community for themselves here, when I mean, they started to see a future for themselves here, essentially. So there is quite a lot of that rich history in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal now. Um, but, but Jen, yeah, you're you right about, um, I mean, the, the aspect of that, that you mentioned before, that, um, you know, the, 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 the fact of their having come here Uh, many of them, I don't imagine, would have wanted to stay initially. Mm. And there was no choice but to stay after a time. Um, And and there there is that that deep sort of groove, that impact on the landscape and and on the politics and on the culture of the time that that has come through into into our South African culture today. So,
1: where the book I mean the book is fascinating right from the very beginning because it 's a series of journeys for me so it 's the journey from shanti's hometown where she escapes almost like a thief in the night and uh, then there's the journey by sea, which is horrific um, but there's, there's no getting away from it you're at sea, so you cope with that and then there are the journeys uh, in Port Natal and that area and begin beginning to to spread out and and all of that. And I, I love the journey, but I also love the meetings that, that you have, there's an Anglican priest. Mm. I, I don't know where he came from in your head, but it was, he's, he's just wonderful, he's what you want a priest to be. Tell us a little bit about him.
0: So, so the, he's actually modeled, he's modeled on two people actually. Um, he's modeled on, on a, a Catholic bishop Sabon, a French bishop who actually lived and, and worked among Indian people at that time in, in, in Natal, um, and, and who was very sympathetic to the cause of indentured people at the time and, and, and had a great feeling for human rights and, and for, uh, for what he believed was the church's duty in, in looking after people. Um, And so he's, on the one hand, the the character's him, but I also imbued him with a few aspects of a friend of mine who's the director of the Jesuit Institute at the moment, um, who's doing quite radical things in the Catholic Church and and the kind of humanism that that he approaches it with. Um, Interestingly enough, it wouldn't have been that out of kilter at the time for a Father John to have existed. Father John, for those who haven't read the book, is someone who actually does fraternize with members of the Indian community. He is sympathetic towards them. He becomes a friend to the, the protagonist and to her best friend. Um, and, and he you know, he feels very warmly towards them, partly because he is from Madras. Um, he has escaped a sort of military life that his father planned for him and chosen to make his home in the church. Um, and and he, he feels very keen towards the Indian community. He, he somehow is able to, to understand their struggle. Um, and he's torn. He's torn as a man of the cloth, who on the one hand uh, you know, is, is tasked with this job of evangelizing and conver- converting the heathens, because that is partly the job of, of, the, uh, of the church at the time. But, but he's, he's, he's also got this deep feeling for what he feels Jesus was about as an individual. And and, and he's fostering, he fosters this idea of Jesus as a kind of revolutionary, who who moved with people who were downtrodden, who, uh, you know, essentially took the side of the underdog and, and, and could identify more closely with the struggle of the oppressed and the subjugated, and, and that, for me, was actually quite an important little nuance. There was a bishop Calenzo at the time, um, who, who was doing much the same thing, and who, who was um, who was actually banished from the church. He was excommunicated because he took that attitude, and and because he had a deep respect for African indigenous beliefs at that time. And so you did get these outstanding individuals who understood um, who understood the, the, the struggles of both indigenous people and the Indian people of the time, um, and, and who were able to somehow identify and push themselves as far as they possibly could within a very, very rigid system in order to be some sort of comfort to those people.
1: So without giving too much away, mm-hmm. Tell us which scene you most enjoyed writing. You know, I sometimes think when you, when you ask that question, uh, and or the opposite as well, um, writers know instinctively what made them happy. They, they even cracked jokes, or they went and cracked open a bottle of bubbly or something like that, but they were writing and they were just thinking, I'm loving this, I don't want it to end, mm-hmm. and whatever, but I've got to do it. Tell us the, your, your favorite scene. If there was such a you know, scene, the,
0: there are two scenes that are really harrowing, and and the, this reminds me of what Karen Jennings said two days ago when we were out on a panel together today. She said writing is hell, and when you decide that you're going to write, you wake up every morning and you pack your bag and you say, okay, off I'm going to hell for the day, and um, and I'll see you later, and and that that really for me, the, there were two scenes involving one, uh, well they're both deaths, they're both murders. Um, in, interestingly enough, um, and, and they were very difficult scenes to write for different reasons. One person who is murdered um, is, is really a, a very ing- very ingenuous, lovable plantation worker, and the other person who's murdered is a, is a, position in a, a person in a position of extreme power um, who is murdered in, a, in an act of vengeance. So their deaths are very different. They occur for very different reasons. Um, and, and on both sides of the spectrum, but but writing those scenes for me was was extraordinary. In in the first scene in which I was writing the death of the indentured labourer, it, it pained me so much to let him go because I loved him. Um, I grew to love him. I did not introduce him earlier in the book. He was introduced quite late in that chapter, but but he was just so. Um, he, he, he was so amiable and so affable, and I took to him so much as a character in that short space of, of having written his, his short life that that it really pained me to kill him off. <laughs> um, but he had to die because the system always claims a life of some kind or another, and and, and that was was what I was. It, it was really important that I that I made that statement that. that that there were people in the system who who were such beautiful human beings, who were eaten up by it, were swallowed entirely by it. Their goodness and their innocence and their guilelessness just swallowed up in the passing of time and never remembered. Those people will never, ever be remembered. Nobody remembers them. They didn't have, have, have descendants, perhaps. Certainly this character doesn't. He's only remembered by his friends of that generation and no one else. And then the other one is, a little, it's a bit sinister, actually, Jenny, um, Tapson, <laughs> when I grow up, perhaps. Um, but but there's, you know, there's the scene where, where a man in an extreme position of power is murdered, and, and it's, it's a murder that's premeditated, and it's a murder that I thought through in great detail because I had to ask myself about what measure of violence someone who is subjugated is entitled to, against the perpetrator. And it's something I've been pondering over for many years, covering all the stories of women and children who've been raped in this country, and, 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 and sitting on the board of women and men against child abuse, and, and watching all of these stories unfold, and knowing that there's often no justice, or very little justice, for those people who've been affected by these violent crimes. And I wanted to give all of those people an outlet in the murder of this man. I, I just found it a completely cathartic experience when my character plunges that piece of glass into his throat. I, I found myself exhaling and thinking to myself, well, this is my hands, Handmaid's Tale moment where you know a rapist is put before the maidens and, before, and, and where they all pick up a stone with the intention of stoning him to death. And, and I felt my character needed that catharsis. The women over the centuries who've experienced rape and violence and, and beatings and emotional and psychological abuse of all kinds deserve that catharsis. And I know that was an entirely, it was an entirely selfish little thing that was going on in my head alone. But for me, it, it resolved something very small, something that I can't resolve in the real world. And, and that death gave me pleasure. I'm sorry to say.
1: So, a final question, because we're out of time, and I know everyone gets very strict about it. What comes next for Joanne Joseph? Jenny, I don't know. You know, I was saying
0: on on a panel the other day. I, I don't think I have another book in me. Mm. Um, I, I heard think that. That, Yeah, and I think it, it's. Yeah, I'm not a career writer like a lot of other really brilliant writers who are attending this festival, who are already in the process of writing other novels and have wonderful ideas. I'm not, I'm not one of those people. I'm someone who had an idea and had something to work on a very personal basis and, and found, found an outlet for it in, in my words. Um, and and sugarcane is the result of that very personal and indulgent experience. Um, and if it means something to people who are able to read it and get, out of, get something out of it, that, that's fabulous. I'm really, I'm really glad for, for everyone who's able to connect with me on that level, and I'm grateful. Um, for now, I have started a PhD, which is linked to the book. It's an exploration of, of feminism in indentured texts in South Africa, the, 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 that is the canon that existed before my book was written. Um, so I've, I've got to force my way through that, mm. I'm struggling um and I, I, I'd like to think I'm a third of the way through or I did until I, I reread some of what I wrote last year uh, last week and realized I had to start from scratch again um, but but that that will probably my, be my next project is to just finish this PhD. Um, and yeah, I don't know maybe that's the end of writing for me, Jen.
1: who knows? who knows mm-hmm. who knows? <laughs> Please put your hand together for put your answers. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Pagecast.
0: We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at Pagecast.